Community Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I'm your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we are speaking with Bridget Wasson. Bridget has been an animal welfare professional for over 20 years. She's held leadership positions in both nonprofit and government animal shelters. In 2014, she started the Path Ahead Animal Shelter Consulting, helping humane organizations to set up and run life-saving programs. She serves on the board of directors of Missing Pet Partnership, a national nonprofit dedicated to lost pet prevention and recovery. She and her partner, Maureen, live in Northern California with two horses, three dogs, and several cats. Bridget, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Stacey. I'm glad to be here today. Uh, I was just wondering if you might share with our listeners how you got started uh, in animal welfare and um, how your involvement's been with uh, community cats. Well, it's kind of a funny story. I had animals as a kid, like many people, and I've always really loved animals and had a heart for animals. But right after high school, I was kind of looking for something to do. And I was visiting my dad at the post office where he was a mail carrier for many years. And just by chance, I was standing there chatting and I looked on the floor and the tubs of mail to be delivered were these flyers for a local humane society saying they were looking for volunteers. So I picked one of those up and I read it and thought, hmm, maybe I'll go volunteer at the Humane Society. That'll keep me busy. And that was how it all started. I started volunteering and within years I was working there and got sucked into the animal welfare world where I still am today. What did you do when you volunteered at that shelter? I actually started in the wildlife department. So that was interesting. I got to handle, you know, injured and ill wildlife, lots of baby bird feeding and that sort of thing. And uh, then at that particular Humane Society, they had a wildlife center and a domestic animal center in the same building. So within a few months, I started becoming more involved in the domestic animal side and eventually took a paying job there. Tell me about your involvement with Community Cats. How's, what's the path been with your involvement with them? So back in the day at that first job at that Humane Society, I burned out pretty quickly because that was in the late 80s, early 90s when there was a lot of euthanasia. There were some good people there really trying to make change. It was the beginnings of change, but we weren't anywhere near where we are today. So it was very depressing. So I lasted there about five or six years and then I resigned um, and just had to get my head back together after having that experience. Well, I got back into it a few years later and as a supervisor, because I decided, you know, this time I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to make decisions. I'm really going to move forward. And this was when No Kill was starting and there were some different ideas about how to handle animals. So I started, I became the animal shelter supervisor for the county of Santa Clara, California. And at that time, there was no community cat program there. But I started working with folks at the other shelters in the area, including the San Jose Animal Shelter. The city of San Jose has over a million people and a huge intake there at their shelter. And they started one of the first feral freedom programs. And so I started learning from them about that program, about fixing all the cats that came in and returning them to the location where they came from. And so I started doing that at my shelter for the county. So you were one of the early adopters at the government level of uh, supporting trap-neuter return? 
Exactly. And it was really challenging because there was a lot of, we can't do that. And that's the way we've always done it. Counties tend to be very conservative, which is fine in some ways, but you know, times change and we need to change with the times. So it was very challenging at first. I did not get a lot of support, but I had a ton of support from the community and from some of the cat people who were doing TNR independently, from some of the private rescue groups, and I was able to earn their trust, and we were able to work together and start saving a lot more cats over the next few years. How were you able to convince the uh, government officials that it was a worthy effort to address the community cats? (laughs) Well, I guess uh, I just did it because I realized at that point that it was better to ask for forgiveness and for permission. So if I mentioned something at a meeting and it didn't go favorably, I'd just say, okay, and then I'd go back and do it anyway um, because I just was tired of killing cats. That was just not an acceptable answer for us. And so we just started doing it. And governments tend to be afraid of complaints. They're really afraid of people complaining about things. And we weren't getting any complaints. In fact, the complaints lessened when I started reaching out to people. I just started picking up the phone. We used to call it dialing for dollars, like that old TV show or dialing for cats. We would call people who were bringing in cats and just say, how can we help you? You know, what's the problem? And I started hearing stories. People started saying, well, I live on a farm. It was in a rural area. I live on a farm and, you know, there's cats and they keep reproducing and I just don't know what else to do. And when I tell them about TNR and how we'd help them place kittens, they were thrilled. It wasn't that people wanted to kill the cats or to just not know what happened to them. They just had no idea what their options were. And when given a humane option, they were thrilled. One man, this old farmer that literally came in with overalls and a straw hat on, burst into tears in the lobby when he said, I've been doing this for 10 years. I've been catching all the kittens. I've been trying to socialize them myself. My wife and I socialize them at home, try to find homes for them, not neutered, of course, because they didn't have the resources to do that. And then they would trap some of the ones that were wild that they could catch and take them to the shelter. This was the first time they'd ever been given another option. And how have the numbers changed in that county or at that shelter since that time to to now? Oh, it was huge. When I first started, the the live release rate was no greater than 60%. And that change quickly went up to over 80%. And by the time I moved on from there after six years, it was in the 90s. That's a fantastic statistic, and it's a story Mm. that should be shared widely. Uh, I, like you, believe that with effective trap-neuter return, low-cost spay-neuter options for cats in the community, you will be able to care for all the cats in the community. One part of the population that we haven't spoken about, though, are the cats that might be lost from their homes. Can you tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing in that area now? Yes. So in 2008, I became involved with Missing Pet Partnership, which is a national nonprofit dedicated to lost pet prevention and recovery. And in 2014, I was invited to serve on the board. So one of the things that I learned through my work with Missing Pet Partnership is that a lot of the cats out there are really not lost. A lot of cats live outdoors, whether they're community cats, whether they're individually owned pets who just kind of hang around in front of their house, or whether they're truly feral cats that are not socialized, but just live in the neighborhood. But one of the interesting things that I found was that when cats truly are lost, when they're an indoor cat, they've gotten out of their home and they've become frightened and lost, or an outdoor access cat who has become displaced, maybe by being chased by a dog or almost hit by a car or something like that. There's been some event that has frightened the cat 
and cause it to leave its territory, then sometimes those cats will actually join up with a feral colony. Because if they can't find their way back home, they're going to look for food and other resources, and they're going to look for other cats. So it's kind of twofold. You have cats that really don't, we don't need to do anything with them other than maybe spaying and neutering them because they just are where they live. And then other ones that actually are lost. So that's the challenge is finding out when to intervene with community cats and when to just leave them alone. And so what is the answer to that question? The answer is managing your intake. One of the things that opponents of this policy will say is, well, if you're managing your intake, you're just turning people away. You're turning people away. They're going to shoot the cats or drown them or whatever the story is that week. But that's never actually been verified to happen. Or people who are going to harm animals were going to do so anyway because they're bad people, not because you ask them where did they find the cat or does it possibly have an owner. So it takes some training and some finesse for staff to understand how to do this correctly. So your goal at the shelter is to only admit cats that actually need your help, that are ill or injured, that perhaps need to be spayed or neutered. And it's about having a conversation with the people finding cats who mostly mean well and want the best for the animal to try to find out what have you done to look for the owner or what, you know, what steps have you taken? And there's also a piece of earning the trust of people who feed feral cats who often aren't in communication with shelters because there's been an adversarial relationship or perhaps they've been cited or there's been some issue like that because those folks are the ones who are going to notice when new cats appear. And even though all these years, we many of us have believed cats ending up in feral colonies are abandoned or dumped, actually they're lost. And now, let's take a moment to listen to a few words from our sponsors. Flashlight tag was fun when you were a kid, but no one wants to play hide-and-seek with their trap. Find your trap's location quickly and safely, even when you visit it at night, with the Reveal Wild application for Samsung Galaxy, HTC One, Sony, Xperia, and other Android phones. Or go to tinyurl.com forward slash Reveal Wild. That's a very hot topic for us here in New England um, in determining when you have a new cat at a colony, what are your best steps in being able to determine if the cat is abandoned or if it's just lost or actually an indoor-outdoor cat that just happens to enjoy the food that's being served. Mm -hmm. We were quite aggressive in Newburyport when we had our colonies and we had started out with 300 cats. And then as of 2008, we don't have any cats on the waterfront. Pretty aggressive aggressively focused on determining whether a cat was owned or not owned. Now we advocate using paper collars or a breakaway collar with some identification on the cat for a couple of days. Do you um, advocate anything like that for people to try and see if there's actually an owner for a cat? Absolutely. And I, I think that what can be challenging is that is is the timing with cats because often if a cat is not a very social cat, it's a pet, it's lived in someone's home, but it's not a very social cat, more frightened, less likely to approach people. That cat may have been hiding for weeks and weeks. So the owner may look for their pet for a few days or a week, but often people will give up because they think the cat's been hit by a car or eaten by a coyote or something like that. So by the time the cat actually is picked up and brought to a shelter, it could be weeks or even months later. By then, the owner has stopped looking. Then on the other hand, you also have short stray holds. And I don't know what they are in your state, but in California, it's only 72 hours. So literally, someone could be gone for the weekend, their cat could be picked up, 
And before they even get home, the cat could have been put down or could have been transferred to another shelter or adopted within days. So it's a timing issue, but definitely efforts need to be made to try and find owners, especially if the cats seem friendly. And of course, they also need to be scanned for a microchip. So you believe every cat should be microchipped? Not necessarily every cat, because again, it depends on the situation. In areas with pet limits and mandatory spay-neuter, you can run into problems because a caretaker may be considered an owner and there may be legal action against them. So this is where it gets complicated. If we didn't have any of those problems and there were no cat limits and there was no ill effects for people who are doing TNR in their communities, then I would say yes, because if your cat ends up At a shelter, even a feral cat that you can't handle, even if they are deceased, at least you'll get some notification of what happened to them. And a lot of the shelters are doing that, or specific feline rescues, they do chip all their cats, and they don't even necessarily have names. They just have numbers for their records to know where their colonies are located. But again, it it depends on the situation in that particular area. Also, I would assume that you're walking through a little decision tree here, sort of. If Mm -hmm. if you come up to a a cat and you're concerned that that cat might be lost or abandoned, and you sort of are going through a mental checklist of the things you need to do in order to determine whether this cat needs your help and what kind of help that the cat needs, and then trying to make that, that decision in February in New England might be a different kind of decision that you would come out with than in July mm-hmm. uh, when shelters are overflowing with cats. But in February, there's not many cats in the shelters, at least in New England. And also it might be 10 below zero and you're getting three feet of snow. So you may be more aggressive about bringing a cat in to shelter at that point mm-hmm. in time. Exactly. It's like you said, there's a decision tree and there's so many factors. There, there are no easy answers. I think the only easy answer is the management and staff of a shelter or the rescue groups they work with need to be educated, need to have sort of a a process for accepting cats that's logical and that everybody needs to be not in agreement on what that process is and needs to be in communication. Now, we don't get snow here where I live, so I don't know about that, but we sure do get some, some hot summers. And especially in the Central Valley, California, you've got cats having three and four litters a year, and it just gets really, really crazy at the shelters there. So it's definitely a different decision-making process, but what I can say to that is to plan ahead especially if you've been doing this for a few years, you know who your frequent flyers are. You know where your problem areas are. Pin them on a map and in January and February, start calling those people and say, have you seen any new cats? Does anybody need to get fixed before they all start getting pregnant? And then at least you've sort of hit up your problem areas because if you really look at it, just like everything else in life, a large percentage of your problems come from a small percentage of people or areas. I call it sort of the room at the inn mentality, which is, you know, you may not have room today, but you might have room later. So you'll always remember and go back to the areas where you're going to need to provide some assistance. Exactly. And, and it's about identifying those people and especially people who are willing to work with you and neighborhoods who are willing to work with you. And I've worked with folks, once you get to know people in the rural areas or in the city, like in the San Jose area, where you get a lot of people in the neighborhood who are all working together. And it really works because they communicate with each other. They notice when new cats show up, they're looking for owners, they're doing TNR. It just works better at the community level because a lot of shelters are miles from where people live. They could even be 25, 30, 50 miles away. So 
the key, I think, is in helping your communities to help themselves, providing them with the resources for spay and neuter, educating them on what to do when they find a cat, and prevention. Because without these things, as I noticed when I first went into that leadership position in Santa Clara County, that it's just a free-for-all. People that just bring in cats and kittens year after year after year after year, and nothing ever changes. Can you tell me a little bit more about the Missing Pet Partnership, what sort of programs you have? Absolutely. So our approach is two-pronged. We educate owners on how to prevent their pets from being lost and how to quickly find them if they are. We also train pet detectives, so people who assist those who are missing pets. And that can be really helpful because most people will only lose a pet once in a lifetime and they're totally freaked out. They don't know what to do. And you're asking these people to navigate a complicated shelter system or look for their animals when they have no idea what to do. The other half, which is more my area of focus, is in educating shelters. So what we are developing right now is a program called Mission Reunite, where it's a combination of online and in-person training provided with follow-up support from Missing Pet Partnership for shelters to set up their own lost pet program. And so what we do is we assist people to learn about the lost pet and owner behaviors, how to best assist owners, how to make those decisions when animals come in the door. And that way the program is sustainable. So it's, we're basically training the trainer. And that's something that's been really popular. And how long has that program been going on? We've had that program for about five or six years now, but we've, we're making some improvements to it currently, and we have some connections because we just got back from speaking at the Humane Society of the United States Expo in Las Vegas. So we anticipate going to a few more shelters later this year and setting up programs there. You also mentioned that you do a bit of consulting. Do you, would you like to share with folks what you do with that? Exactly. So what I do, once I uh, retired from actually being a shelter director, I wanted to get the word out because I enjoy teaching and I enjoy traveling and helping people set up programs. And I think that's the kind of support that a lot of shelters don't have. What I find when I do research projects, when I call around, when I go to expos and meet people all over the country... It's like a lot of people in shelters are on islands and people in those communities too. They have no idea what anybody else is doing in the same business. There are 125 animal shelters in Northern California alone, thousands across the country, many of them not communicating with each other, not having any idea what's going on in the next city, county, or state, not having any idea what standard procedures are and struggling, really trying to do well, but just struggling without having that basic information. So what I like to do is do assessments. I've done some work over the phone or Skype or to actually go to the shelter and help them set up programs like a TNR program, like a lost pet program, or just to help them with infrastructure support. You get some shelters where they've recently had tons of turnover, where there's a whole new board, there's a whole new staff, and nobody knows what to do because they've in losing all the old people, they've basically lost their history. So you kind of have to start over again. So it's been very interesting, very interesting to see how different shelters have some of the same issues in common, but also are doing things completely differently. And thinking ahead five or 10 years or so, what do you think that the country will look like with regards to community cats? It's looking really good, especially with initiatives like the Million Cat Challenge and getting backers like Maddie's Fun and HSUS. 
it's really going into the mainstream where it is no longer acceptable to simply take in cats and put them down because they are feral or because the shelter is full or fill in the blanks, whatever reason. That That is no longer acceptable. And there are many other answers. And I believe that with education, every shelter in this country will be able to make those right choices and see that success. How can people find you? They can go to my website, which is animalsheltersuccess.com, or they can email me at info at animalsheltersuccess.com. Bridget, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? Well, I'd just like to say, as we say at Missing Pet Partnership, to think lost, not stray, to not assume that animals you find have been abandoned, and to do the best you can for the animals in your community. That's where you start. Bridget, thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on my show today, and I hope you'll be willing to be on the show in the future. Absolutely. Thank you, Stacy. Thanks for listening to the Community Cats Podcast. If you could go to iTunes and review the show, we'd really appreciate it. When you do, take a screenshot of your review, go to communitycatspodcast.com forward slash review and enter your information and we'll send you a t-shirt. While you're there, don't forget to check out all the ways you can support the content you're passionate about. Thanks, everyone. Wow.